Good morning, church. My name is Adam. If you don't know me, it's wonderful to have you with us this morning. If you do decide that you'd like to sign up to serve and and join a a service team here, then you can place that form that you fill out just in the silver buckets. There's one at that door there and there's one at the um, exit as well. So we've tried to cover all the doors, which means you can't walk out without seeing one of those buckets. Just kidding. Today we uh, come to week four of our sermon series, Divine Design, Rediscovering the Christian Vision of Sexuality. What we've been doing for a few weeks is exploring what the Bible has to say to us about this really important area of our lives, our sexuality. And the reason that we're doing this series, it's not so much to criticise what everyone else is doing, but rather to clarify what God expects of us as his people. And if you're not a Christian with us this morning, our ultimate hope and aim and goal for you is not that you would embrace Christian ethics. Our hope and goal is that you would embrace Jesus Christ because Jesus changes everything about us, the way we view ourselves, the way we view the world, including this important area of our lives. Now so far in this series we've talked about, in week one, we talked about the four core convictions at the heart of the Christian vision of sexuality. We've talked about Jesus' humanity and what that means for our sexuality. And then last week we talked about the reality that we have been created, male and female, in the image of God. Today we come to the foundational human relationship of marriage. And if we look around us at at all that is going on, we see a wide variety of opinions and thoughts and approaches to marriage. I think if we look around us, we see a growing pessimism and scepticism about marriage. In fact, according to all the statistics, we are in our day and age marrying less, marrying later. The marriage rate has lowered and the marriage age has extended by almost 10 years. And not only that, but we've turned marriage into a reality television show, multiple reality television shows there's a kind of growing scepticism and pessimism about marriage. Not only that, but I think we see a changing understanding of what marriage is and what marriage represents. In fact, in the last 50 years, there has been a massive shift in the way that we view marriage. Today, we more naturally view it through the lens of consumerism and individualism. What's in it for me? There's a growing pessimism about marriage. There's a changing understanding of marriage. And into this environment, the Bible speaks. And the Bible says something very interesting about marriage in Hebrews chapter 13. Look at what we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. The Bible says to us, marriage is to be honoured by all. Now, the Bible does not say this about any other human relationship. Being a parent is an incredible privilege. But the Bible does not say parenting is to be honoured by all. Being a friend is a huge blessing in life. But the Bible does not say friendship is to be honoured by all. Marriage is given a privileged position in the Bible. And it places this often 
messy relationship in a special place. And today I'd like to ask the question, why? What does the Bible teach us about marriage and why does it matter? This is what we're going to be exploring today, the biblical vision of marriage and its significance. Now maybe you're wondering at this point, or or maybe you've heard this objection before, but maybe you're thinking, well, why should we listen to the Bible? I mean, the Bible itself seems pretty confused about marriage. If you read the Bible, you will find that there are different marital arrangements within its pages. For example, you will find instances of polygamy in the Bible. Multiple wives. For example, King David, a man after God's own heart, he had many wives. We're told he had as many as eight. Not to mention his son, Solomon, who, get this, we're told had 700 wives. I'm not going to make any comments. I've learned from John making mistakes in the past. Now, some people wonder, well, why shouldn't polygamy be considered part of the biblical definition of marriage if we're talking about a biblical definition of marriage? Well, here's the answer, and this is key. And it might sound basic, but it's important to point out. Just because the Bible records what people did does not mean the Bible endorses what people did. In other words, just because the Bible mentions that a certain practice happened in the history of God's people, it does not amount to the Bible's approval of that practice. See, the Bible is not primarily a record of good examples for us to try and emulate, to copy. The Bible is a record of a very good God rescuing a very sinful humanity. And there are a number of instances in the Bible where we, sinful humanity, get it very, very wrong. And this is why, if we want to understand what the Bible has to say to us about marriage, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to the account of creation in the book of Genesis. And what we see there is that marriage is not something that we came up with. Marriage is not something that we invented. Rather, marriage is something that has been given to us by God. And because God has given it to us, we don't get to define it, but God does. In fact, one scholar says it this way. says, marriage is not a human invention, it is a divine revelation. It was given to us at the beginning of all things. We might not always live up to its true grandeur. None of us does so perfectly. But we have no right to redefine it and we have every reason to revere it. Now I know that we approach this particular issue from all different kind of situations and circumstances and backgrounds. Some of us are here this morning and we're single and we wonder what this has to do with us. Others of us are in a relationship, but we're not yet married, and perhaps there's, there's longing in our hearts. Others of us are, are married, and, and we're flourishing. Our marriages aren't perfect, and they're not easy or simple, but they're rich, and they're deep, and they're life-giving. Others of us, we're married, and we're floundering. We really thought that our marriage would be different to what we're experiencing right now. 
We're walking through some incredible disappointment and hurt and guilt. And we honestly don't know if we can or even if we should hang in there. For others of us, there has been some serious betrayal in our lives. There's been broken promises, broken trust and broken relationships. I know that we all come to this issue from different backgrounds and in different situations. And the reality is that I can't address every single one of us in here this morning. But what we can do together, what we can do as we seek to honour marriage, is we can seek to understand God's design of marriage and then walk together as the people of God in applying its implications in our lives. So with that being said, Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 18 to 25, but while you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of the context. Now, if you know the story, you know that in Genesis 1, we read about the creation of the cosmos. God creates the world and he creates humanity. And when we read it, we see that it is a story filled with grandeur and beauty and significance. And so when we get to the end of chapter 1, we're almost left wondering, well, what's next? What could possibly follow the glories of this first chapter that we read in the Bible? And it's almost surprising, almost shocking, that as we open up to chapter 2, it begins to tell us about the very first wedding ceremony. The Bible moves from this kind of cosmic majesty in Genesis chapter 1 to this almost everyday common reality in Genesis chapter 2. And this really should lead us to ask the question, well, isn't marriage a little bit out of its depth here alongside the creation of the universe? Or does the Bible see marriage a little bit more significantly than we typically do? Let's have a look at these verses and find out. Beginning in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now let me just stop there because I know that there's a word in that verse that has some baggage. Now, here we have God about to create woman from man, and he describes the woman as a helper. Now let me be very clear, this cannot and does not imply inferiority. Now how do we know that? Because the very same word is applied to God in the Bible. God is at multiple times described as our helper. And so this is not God saying, I will make man a servant. I will make him someone who will make his dinner and clean his clothes. That's not what's going on here. This is God saying, I will make man a compliment. Someone who can come alongside him, compliment him, strengthen him, so that they can together serve me in this world. Verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. 
But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now let me just stop here again, because what's with the parade of the animals? Now the answer is that God is awakening Adam to his aloneness and to his sense of need. He is preparing Adam for the gift of Eve. And he's preparing him to recognise and to rejoice in the one who, unlike the animals, is fit for him, corresponding to him, like him. And so it seems that even before the fall, men were a little bit clueless when it comes to women. Needed a little bit of help. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now I love what Matthew Henry, an old uh, commentator from many years ago, says on this verse. He says, The woman was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And so God comes to Adam and he says to him, Adam, you can wake up now. I have another creature for you and I'm very, very interested in hearing your response to this one. Look at what we read. Then the man said, This at last. I'm sick of those dogs and cats and cows. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now these verses are incredibly rich and incredibly profound. And we could pull out many different insights from them, but this morning we're talking about marriage and so I want us just to focus on verse 24. Because verse 24 gives us God's definition of marriage. If you wonder what's the Bible's definition of marriage, this is it in verse 24. And in this verse we see three key phrases and each phrase teaches us an important truth about marriage. So let's look at them. Number one. Firstly, what verse 24 teaches us about marriage is that marriage is a comprehensive union. And we see that there at the end of verse 24 when we read, and they shall become one flesh. Now what does it mean for a husband and a wife to become one flesh? Well, it's more than just an emotional connection or romantic attraction. It is a comprehensive union. I like the way Ray Ortland puts it in his excellent little book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. He says, In the one flesh union of marriage, all the boundaries between a man and a woman fall away, and the married couple comes together completely as long as they both shall live. In real terms, two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us, building a new life together with one total everything, One story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, and so forth. Marriage removes all barriers 
and replaces them with a comprehensive oneness. And this explains the difference between marriage and every other human relationship. Think about it. I have strong emotional and relational connections with lots of different people. With my son, with my parents, with my siblings, with my friends and and so forth. Yet I have a comprehensive union with none of those people. Only with Molly do I have a one flesh union, a comprehensive union. Because it's only with her that do I unite comprehensively, legally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually and bodily. And the bodily aspect of the marital union is essential. In fact, this is why the Bible calls it a one flesh union. Not a one heart or one spirit or one soul union, but one flesh because the uniting of bodies is essential. And this is not just the uniting of bodies in a general way, like holding hands or exchanging a ring. It refers to the coming together of two bodies in a specific way. Because, as I probably don't need to point out, men and women have one and only one bodily organ that has been specifically designed for a complement. And when these two organs come together, they quite literally form a one flesh union. And this tells us why the Bible defines marriage as between one man and one woman. This tells us why God specifically created sex for the context of marriage. See, sex is not a gift that's been given to us for our general enjoyment in whatever way we please. Sex is a gift that has been given to us for the specific context of marriage between a man and a woman. As one scholar says, sex is designed by God to be the body language of lifelong union. And when we try to use this body language in other ways and in other contexts, it causes us harm. Because that's not what it was designed for. Vaughan Roberts puts it this way, a pastor from the UK. He says, in God's creation design, sex is profoundly relational. But in our culture, it is increasingly seen, not relationally, but recreationally as a means to individual pleasure. This mentality offers so much, but ultimately never satisfies. It is dehumanising, seeking a pleasure, not a person. Once it has had what it wants, it quickly moves on. It is no wonder that the permissive society has left so many lonely, hurting people in its wake. They feel used. See, sex was designed for the safety, the acceptance, the commitment of marriage, because sex is designed to establish and express a one flesh union, the comprehensive union of marriage. And this is the first thing that we can learn from verse 24 in Genesis chapter 2, that marriage is a comprehensive union. It's one life fully shared between one man and one woman. But Genesis 22 verse 24 also tells us that marriage is an exclusive union. We see that there at the phrase at the start of verse 24, where we're told, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now this obviously doesn't mean that a bride and a groom should end all contact with their parents. 
this is not permission for you to cut off the in-laws. Sorry. Now, the point of the phrase is that when a couple gets married, they make a decisive break from all other people and all other relationships. They enter into a relationship that is just between the two of them. It does not include any others, not even parents. It is exclusive. This is why the vows that a married couple often make on their wedding day will include, usually, the promise to forsake all others. Or as Ray Ortland puts it again in his book, marriage puts a barrier around a husband and his wife and destroys all barriers between them. They belong fully to one another and to one another only. And again, the bodily union of a man and a woman is essential to this. Because the physical act of sex is a visible symbol of the exclusivity of the marriage relationship. Let me say that again. The physical act of sex is a visible symbol of the exclusivity of the marriage relationship. Because when a man and a a husband and a wife unite their bodies sexually, there are only two people involved in that act. It's a way, a physical, visible way for a husband and a wife to say to one another, I give myself to you, I belong to you and only to you. And this helps us understand some of, the other Bible, some of the Bible's other commands regarding marriage. For example, this is why adultery is prohibited in the Bible and is so devastating to marriage. Because you can share a meal with someone, a car ride with someone, a phone call with someone, but if you share your body with someone else, that will be devastating to your marriage. Because sharing your body is part of the essence of what marriage is. Is So God's design for marriage is a comprehensive and exclusive union. It's one life fully shared between one man and one woman and it places a barrier around the couple with no barriers between them. But Genesis chapter 2.24 also tells us more. It tells us that marriage is a permanent union. And we see this in the middle phrase, in verse 24, where we're told a man will leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife. Now, the Hebrew word translated hold fast is used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to soldering two pieces of metal together. And when a man and woman come together in marriage, they are soldered together. They are joined together irrevocably and permanently. This, again, is why a married couple on their wedding day make the vow to be faithful to one another as long as we both shall live or until death do us part. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, my purpose today is not to address the Bible's teaching on divorce. But let me just say that divorce is serious because marriage is serious. And if you find yourself in a place at the moment where where that is a path that you're walking down, can I encourage you to reach out? Reach out for help. But let me also say that divorce is not the irredeemable sin. That divorced Christians are not second-class Christians or inferior Christians. But we must understand that God's design for marriage is permanence. 
Now I think today that permanence is seen as one of the most intimidating aspects of marriage. And I think this would partly explain the rise of um, cohabitation, living together before marriage. In fact, according to the Australian Institute of Family Studies, four out of five Australian couples will live together before they get married. You see, many people fear getting stuck in a bad relationship or committing to the wrong relationship, and so they try it out before committing. But sadly, this actually often has the opposite effect of what is intended. In fact, I I read an article this week from the New York Times. The New York Times, which is not a Christian publication. It released an article titled, The Downside of Cohabiting Before Marriage. And the the author said, couples who cohabit before marriage, and especially before an engagement or an otherwise clear commitment, tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than couples who do not. Now, why is that the case? Well, there's one scholar points out that says, cohabitation requires all the emotional demands of marriage, but without the security, because no promises have been made. Or as the New York Times concludes in this article itself, it says a life built on top of maybe you'll do simply may not feel as dedicated as a life built on top of the we do of marriage. So Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 gives us God's definition of marriage. It's a joining together of a man and a woman in a comprehensive, exclusive, permanent union. To put it more simply, it's one life fully shared between one man and one woman. Now let me just say that we don't live in a Genesis 2 world anymore. The fall happened in Genesis 3 and that has marred and disfigured God's gift of marriage. And that means that we all are in here today experiencing some of the brokenness that comes with sin. But this is what God is calling us to. This is what God has designed marriage to be. And we can step forward towards that in the grace of God, pursuing what he is calling us to, wherever we find ourselves in life. This is what marriage is. But we've got one more question that we have to answer, don't we? One more question from the start that we haven't yet answered. And that is, why does marriage matter? Why is marriage afforded such a privileged position in the biblical storyline? Why are we commanded by the Bible to hold marriage in honour? Why does it follow Genesis 1, the creation of the cosmos? Well, to answer this question, we need to look at the end of the Bible. Because you see, the Bible not only begins with a wedding, it also ends with a wedding. And this communicates something very, very important to us. And it explains our undeniable draw and attraction to marriage as well. Because I think even though there's growing pessimism about marriage in our day, there is still an undeniable attraction towards it. In fact, did you know that two billion people watched the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle the other month? Two billion. Think about some of the stories and movies and books that we love. How often do they end with a wedding? And the wedding is a time of feasting and rejoicing and happiness and love. And this is not just a coincidence. This communicates the deeply important truth to you and I that we were created for marriage. The world was made for marriage. 
And I'm not saying that we'll all get our own wedding day in this life, but I am saying that we are all heading towards the ultimate wedding at the end of time. See, the Bible is a love story. It begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve and it ends with the marriage of God and his people. In Genesis 2, God gives a bride to a man and in Revelation chapter 21 at the end of the Bible, God does it again, but this time it's even better. He gives the redeemed human race to his son. Look at what we read in these verses in Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Human marriage was designed by God to serve as a whisper, as a picture of the eternal marriage between God and his people. And it doesn't matter if you're married or if you're single in this life. If your faith is in Christ, the ultimate bridegroom, then you're not missing out on the ultimate marriage. See, to become a Christian does not mean you just add a little bit of religion to your life. To become a Christian, let me put it this way, means to be proposed to by the living God. And he promises to give himself to you totally and completely and fully. And in return, you give yourself to him totally, fully and completely. He's already died for all your sins and now all he asks of you is to say, I do. And when you do, you belong to him completely, finally, fully and forever. Because this is what marriage is all about. This is why marriage matters. This is what marriage points us to. Now let me just close with a few words to the unmarried and the married among us, which is all of us. If you're unmarried, and perhaps you'd like to be married one day, the Bible affirms you in that desire. Marriage is a good gift from God. And I would encourage you to commit your longing to God. Pray for his provision at the right time if it's his will. But also in your desire to be married, don't be hasty or unwise. Marriage is a deep and lifelong commitment. And if you long for marriage because you believe it will be your only hope for for joy and, and satisfaction in this life, then you need to remind your heart that you were made for marriage, but you were made for the ultimate marriage. You were made for union with God through Jesus Christ. And it's only in Jesus that you will find what you're looking for. Ultimate love, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate meaning. To those of us who are married, if a marriage is going to remain healthy and strong over many years, it's going to need time and effort and prayer and tears and commitment and community. Don't take your marriage for granted. Give time and attention to one another. And express your love both physically and with words. Now, if you find yourself in a a difficult season, don't ignore it. Talk to one another. And if that's not working, involve someone else you can trust. Involve professional help. And talk to God. 
Ask him for the strength that you need. Maybe it would be simple as, Father, please intervene in our marriage. I feel lonely, mad, hopeless and helpless. I want to run away, but I choose to run to you. Please help us. God is the one who brought you together on your wedding day and he can bring you together again and keep you together. And fix your eyes on that final day, the ultimate marriage, the marriage we were all made for. No spouse or marriage in this life can give us what only Christ can give. He is the ultimate spouse and he has given himself to us totally, completely, finally and forever. Let's give ourselves to him. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning humbly and in need. Wherever we find ourselves, Lord, we know that we need you. Whether it's in the midst of a a longing to be married, Lord, fill us with your love. Help us to see that you alone Give us what we truly long for. But help us to also see that this desire for marriage is a good desire, a gift from you. And so help us in that. Help us to navigate this time in our lives. Lord, those of us who are married, we are so aware of our need for you day by day. Protect us, Lord, from from all that would harm us or, or separate us or bring us apart. Help us to be quick with our repentance, quick to ask for forgiveness, regular with our words of encouragement and help us to be loving in our conflicts, Lord. Help us to see, all of us, Lord, the great purpose of marriage, the reason we have marriage, which is to give us a whisper, a picture of the ultimate marriage that we're all heading for, that final day when Christ will return and we will sit down to eat in ultimate and eternal joy at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we now have the opportunity to respond by coming to Lord's Supper. And Lord's Supper is a visible reminder of the price that Jesus paid to bring us to God. The bread, it represents his broken body, 